I want to believe that things are going to get better soon. I think that it is that we've trapped ourselves in a situation we're getting out has a lot of negative consequences. I mean, you, you, what you're saying that there are a lot of people that are like us that are speaking out now. Um, I think a very small minority of us are able to continue on and make a living <laughs> yes, while espousing. Don't say us either. That yes, exactly. Not necessarily. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, you or me. I'm, I'm barely in this camp, right? Um, but <laughs> but there's so few of us for whom it is even like a a reasonable dream that you can hold these views and still, you know, uh, be in the intellectual discourse in one way or another and make a living. For the vast majority of people, it's, it's, this is not a reality. This is not something they can count on. And to espouse these views means losing their job. Increasingly in the culture-making institutions, right? Increasingly in academia, in uh, the media um, as a whole, uh, in various cultural, like just arts-based uh, institutions. So it's, if you're in this kind of, in these kinds of spaces, these spaces which are which have huge influence on what we think as a society and how we feel as a society and how we, um, you know, understand our current moments, you know, um, and articulate them. If, if these, uh, if you want to participate and be a thinking person, you want to be a writer, you want to be a journalist, writing an anti-woke thing might get you blacklisted in so many different places. It's already hard to make it as a journalist. So, you know, are you going to take this risk? Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Daum. My guest, whose voice you just heard, is Sarah Hader. I'm going to tell you about her in a minute, but first, uh, a little housekeeping. Some exciting housekeeping, actually. Last week, in my interview with Jonathan Haidt, uh, you may have heard me talk about a project that I've been working on over the last several months. It is, uh, for lack of a better descriptor, a heterodox space for women. You can go back and listen to that interview if you missed it for a fuller explanation. But suffice it to say, I have been interested in the fact that this whole free thought space, uh, and that would be the world of podcasters and YouTubers and sense makers who are known for pushing back against groupthink, is a pretty male-dominated space. There are exceptions, of course, and my guest today is among them. But given the number of women I hear from all the time, and that's not just media types, but regular women in the world, about how alone they have begun to feel as their social circles have become more tribal, and how this doesn't just bother them, but genuinely hurts them, it has become clear to me that there is a void out there that really needs to be filled. So I am creating something called the Unspeakeasy. It's an intellectual community for free-thinking women. And while it's still very much a work in progress, I can tell you that it will exist both online and in real life and have any number of offerings that I am in the process of figuring out. A few weeks ago, I took a group of women out into the desert to have a three-day brainstorming session about the whole thing, and it was amazing, and I feel there are many more to come. So if you want to learn about what we're up to, you can go to theunspeakeasy.com. 
there's a little memo from me and an opportunity for you to get on the mailing list and also tell me what you might be looking for from such a community. If you are not a woman, don't fret. I'm also planning to build out the larger unspeakable community, even beyond the Patreon. And that, of course, is and will remain for everyone. Anyway, my guest is Sarah Hader. She is an activist, a writer, and has been a noted figure in the so-called New Atheist Movement. That is due to her having founded, in 2013, the advocacy group Ex-Muslims of North America. That work led her to the trenches of the new free speech and free think movements, and she now writes on Substack, covering issues around race, identity, gender, and social politics of various sorts. Sarah and I have a lot of overlapping interests, so I wanted to have her on the show to talk about them. I will say that when we recorded this conversation, we spent almost the entire first hour talking about her upbringing. Uh, Sarah came to this country at age seven when she immigrated with her parents from Pakistan, and she was a devout Muslim until she had a radical change of perspective as a teenager. Uh, but even though that stuff was really interesting, I thought the interview really took off after we covered that stuff. So if you're listening to the regular public version of this podcast, you won't hear that part. The entire uncut interview is available on the Patreon page, uh, which you can find at patreon.com slash the unspeakable. Otherwise, here is my more concise but still pretty long interview with Sarah Hader. Sarah Hader, welcome to The Unspeakable. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for having me, Megan. I've been following you for a long time, and I really admire not only your work, but just the way you present yourself. I think that you um, have a lot of, you have a ton of integrity, and you're just really very, very clear and very just grounded in, in your whole approach. So I want to talk about all that, but just so people are familiar with you and your background you are the co-founder of the advocacy group Ex-Muslims of North America. I guess like what, in the past 10 years or so? You've been active, what, for like nine or 10 years? Um, yeah, about that time. We we started form, forming around 2013. That's when we incorporated. Um, and then we were a nonprofit by 2014. So it's it's, yeah, almost a decade. Okay. And so since then, you've expanded beyond the kind of new atheist movement that that group was kind of associated with. And you're, you're really, you're, you're really involved in the free speech arena more broadly. So I, I guess I just wanted to start off by asking, what do you spend most of your time thinking about and talking about these days? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, it, it was kind of a natural journey from ex-Muslim activism, uh, and especially being grounded in the activist space to, to beginning to think about what was wrong with the activist space and, um, you know, what we needed to do more generally to have the kind of society that fosters healthy dialogue. Um, and it's, you know, in my work, there are there's lots of uh, you know literal um, Im impediments to free speech that that we encounter. Right? There's blasphemy laws across the world. There's apostasy laws across the world. There's all kinds of speech restrictions that 
become a, a kind of blasphemy law. And in the United States, we don't really have to worry about that very much. But the discourse is still not as healthy as it could be. And this was one of the more surprising things that I learned through the course of my activism. Um, and, and actually, it, it became clear to me very, very quickly within a couple of years of starting to speak about ex-Muslim issues publicly within the first the atheist circles and then more broadly among uh, just as general population, it became very clear to me that something was wrong. <laughs> and I, at first I just didn't know what it was. And I was thinking about uh, for, you know, for, for years I've been thinking about what is, what is it that's gone wrong and how is it that's gone wrong? And I think a lot of people are in this similar space of being confused with how certain strands of, you know, political discourse um, behave and with how their, their, maybe their tribe um, is now behaving and, and what they thought to be the principles that, that uh, their group was formed around were maybe not the, uh, the principles that it was formed around. There, there was something else that was happening and I think that we there were a lot of people I noticed around the same time that were voicing this kind of uh, confusion and discontent, I guess, with what what I could call like vaguely liberal progressive leftist politics. And I consider myself as part of that movement. So I've been thinking about those things um, to various degrees for a very long time. So that was a few years ago now. In the years since, you have you know, found yourself in this space that I'm also in and a number of, you know, mutual friends and colleagues where we're just kind of constantly pushing back against whatever this is. I'm, I'm reluctant to use the word wokeism, although I haven't really found a better one. I don't know really what my question is. Like, what what is bothering you the most these days? Because certainly there are a lot of us talking about this a lot of the time. Um, and yet it, I'm not sure if things are getting better or worse or changing in any meaningful way. What do you think? I think they're getting worse. I mean, I, I would say that very clearly. I've been saying that everywhere, which is, <laughs> I feel bad about it because then you feel like this, you know, prophet of doom and the person bringing in bad news. But I, I think that, you know, I, I, I had a piece, uh, a back and forth on um, Letter Wiki back in the day when it was running. I think they've become absorbed by Substack or something. Um, but I had a, a letter exchange with Ayan Hirsi Ali. And it ended up becoming about wokeism. I and mean, we, we first, uh, we, we had like a little pre-chat before we engaged in this. And, you know, we were thinking we could talk about all these things, but it became clear that both of us were thinking very much about wokeism. So even though Islam was the natural <laughs> topic of discussion, it became wokeism that we were concerned with. Um, and she and I wrote back and forth quite a few times. Uh, I think three, I wrote three letters, she wrote two. And my contention was, you know, right from the get-go, uh, that you, they've already won. I mean, there's no, I think that's, it's very clear in my mind that this is just, what we're seeing is, is not quite a takeover. It's just the explicit, you know, manifestations of a takeover that already happened in, in, in all the meaningful ways that it needs to happen. Because it's, it's, it's not the case that social change happens uh, because uh, it, it convinces the majority of the people that doesn't happen. It doesn't happen like that anywhere, even in democracies. You know, it, it 
can, can you convince the right people? Can you manipulate uh, one or two aspects of of you know the 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 norms of your society, or even sometimes even legal norms or practices in your favor, in in a way that helps those few people that that are very much uh, believers in that ideology. So it it doesn't. I mean, I've seen this happen in the Muslim world over and over. Although uh, those are not what you could, you can't call those democracies. But at the same time, it wasn't the case that. Uh, the majority of people ever believed in, you know, the extreme view, uh, and yet the extreme view took over very, very quickly. So I don't think that what we're seeing here is altogether different, uh, although the f- the specifics of it are very different. But it is still the case that the right people that needed to be convinced that this was the right religion um, already have been, and that the way back is you know, difficult to impossible in certain circumstances, you know, so how do you go, how do you go back now? Okay. So, but you're, okay. The the right people have been convinced. You're talking about they, people have been absorbed into sort of social justice ideology. I mean, I would call it sort of like reductive social justice ideology again, because nobody is against social justice. (laughs) See, this is the great trick, right? Like nobody's against, no, no, nobody is, no, nobody is not anti-racist just on its face. Nobody's against social justice, but these terms have been uh, recruited to give cover to something that's a lot more, I don't want to say pernicious. This sounds very conspiratorial, but it's just, it's just, um, it's, it's simplistic to the point of destructiveness, I guess. But most, okay, but Sarah, here's the thing. Most people hate this. Like the vast, vast majority of people, it doesn't matter because the institutions have been captured. The the institutions have been captured. The elite has been captured, right? The 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 people with the with the credentials, the people who are graduating from from our top schools, um, our brightest uh, young people have been captured, and they will go into the kinds of positions where their opinion matters more than everybody else's. And no one likes to hear this, but it is the case that the opinion of a Harvard grad ma- matters more than the opinion of you know somebody who graduated from University of Tennessee, um, you know, middle of their class or whatever. Like, I mean, that's just that that's the reality of the world that we're living in, in which in which certain people have more power and prestige and even natural gifts right and they can and they can use them towards a certain goal or or towards another and what's what makes me feel very part of part of the negativity here or or uh, i don't know um, pessimism You're pessimism right <laughs> part of the pessimism here is to see how within the elite itself that there's such clear uniformity. Um, I mean, if you look at any social movement, it is not ever pure populism. You know, it is never the purely the people have finally risen up, you know, and they're standing up against X or Y or Z. There's always that there's a certain contingent of elite support for uh, any particular cause. And that's, that's necessary um, for it to have foothold in, in a, you know, a naturally hierarchical society. So we we need what we need is certain amount of elite to disagree with, uh, you know, their peers and to step up and be courageous. I'm pessimistic 
Um, but that's not to say that I think it's impossible, but uh, I think it will be hard. I mean, what frustrates me too is that the pushback to this stuff is often just as stupid as the stuff itself. You know, there's like us that are in the middle and we're trying to be nuanced and all of that. But, you know, unfortunately we get like the Chris Rufos of the world and we get Fox News and we get Tucker Carlson and that is not really helping matters. It's just, it's like, it's, we have this kind of war between two not very thoughtful extremes. And I still think that the vast majority of people agree with people like you and me, but what you're saying is that it doesn't matter because the elites have been captured by the extremes. I just can't believe that the elites would be that stupid. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean, that's what's, uh, that's what's interesting about it because they're not stupid. They're the smartest people in our society. I mean, uh, uh, you know, and I don't feel, you know, I, I, I don't hesitate to say this, you know, that, that the, the kids who go to Yale, to Harvard, they really are very bright, very hardworking, very uh, conscientious, which is why it's so scary. It's not so much that I, I think the average person isn't, I agree with you that I think the average person doesn't even, doesn't agree with this. I would even, maybe I'll go further. I might say that even a good portion, I don't know how, how large of a, of a, of a portion of the elite don't believe in it, but they feel sufficiently pressured to say the thing that they need to say, which is essentially uh, to parrot dogma unquestioningly. So, I mean, that's why I've been thinking so much about, you know, what are the, how are the social dynamics working in this way to reproduce this ideology that is, as you said, stupid, right? But stupid, but being held by smart people, which is in itself like a very interesting situation. (laughs) And then also something that's despised by the average person and increasingly despised by the kinds of people who the elite champion, right? Like it's weird to see, for example, um, I remember um, some New York Times, there was a, I think it was, I forget, I forget exactly, Charles Blow maybe, who who published a piece after the the last um, presidential election, when the polling results came back and it, it, it seemed as if more black people and brown people voted for Trump than, than in 2016, right? There was a movement towards Trump, right? And he couldn't cope with it. So the, the, his, his response was to call them, you know, it's multiracial whiteness, you know, white supremacy or whatever. So they have to find some bizarre way to, to make sense of what's happening because it's clearly their, their ideology does not reflect reality, you know? Um, and they're going to increasingly find that they have to you know, twist and twist and twist to make this work. So I'm hoping at some point it breaks. Um, just reason has uh, too much weight in, in all this and, and you can't twist any anymore. Um, and it becomes easier socially to to actually just break out of it. But I'm not sure. And why are you pessimistic though? Because there are so many of us speaking out. I mean, we, our space, whatever you want to call it, it's gaining momentum every day, I feel like. You know, I mean, any, every time I have these conversations, like, uh, you know, you'll say this and like, the, I, I was having the, my last conversation was with uh, Angel Eduardo and I'm, Melissa Chen. Yes, I saw it on the, on their perspective. Yes. And, the, and the they were podcast. basically, yeah, yeah. They were, they were saying this to me as well towards the end. They were just like, but Sarah, <laughs> and it, I want to believe that things are going to get better soon. I think that it is 
that we've trapped ourselves in a situation. We're getting out has a lot of negative consequences. I mean, you, you, what you're saying that there are a lot of people that are like us that are speaking out now. Um, I think a very small minority of us are able to continue on and make a living <laughs> yes, while espousing. Don't say us either. That yes, exactly. Right. Not necessarily. <laughs> right. I mean, you or me. I'm, I'm barely in this camp, right? Um, but <laughs> but there's so few of us for whom it is even like a, a reasonable dream that you can hold these views and still you know, uh, be in the intellectual discourse in one way or another and make a living for the vast majority of people. It's, it's, this is not a reality. This is not something they can count on. And to espouse these views means losing their job increasingly in the culture making institutions, right? Increasingly in academia, in, uh, the media, um, as a whole, uh, in various cultural, like just arts, uh, based institutions. So it's, if you're in this kind of in these kinds of spaces, these spaces, which are, which have huge influence on what we think as a society and how we feel as a society and how we, um, you know, understand our current moments, you know, um, and articulate them. If, if these, uh, if you want to participate and be a thinking person, you want to be a writer, you want to be a journalist, writing an anti-woke thing might get you blacklisted in so many different places. It's already hard to make it as a journalist. So, you know, are you going to take this risk? This is so interesting. Are you, you're 31. How old are you? Yeah, about 30. (laughs) You're 30. Okay. So uh, you have never really known a media landscape that's significantly different than what you just described. Mm, I get, yeah, no. Is that fair to say? Okay. This is really interesting because, so I'm like, 20 years older than you, a little more than 20 years older than you. And I, and I've said this a million times on this podcast, but I came of age as a writer and a journalist in the early nineties when the job was to push back against easy narratives. You were supposed to surprise your reader. You're supposed to challenge them. You were supposed to kind of be counterintuitive. So I guess maybe I'm naive But I think having had that experience and having cut my teeth in that kind of intellectual climate maybe makes me more hopeful. Like I can imagine getting back to that place, whereas you never even experienced that place. So I think that's that's something that maybe is really worth worth parsing because there's there's a generational divide here. Where, you know, and sometimes it looks like, oh, just the old, the old people, you know, we, we want to go back to the way it was because we were, because, you know, the, the white elites were, were, were profiting and the gatekeeping mechanisms favored us and excluded other people. So, you know, th- there is that. But I also think that, you know, for those of us who really spend a lot of time thinking about this stuff and know that it, it's not just as simple as, you know, regular run of the mill gatekeeping mechanisms, there is, there is a path back to the best aspects of how it used to be. We can get rid of the bad stuff while also recapturing the good stuff because we remember it. So I'm of two minds about that. On um, on the one, I think that there's, you know, uh, that that's an interesting point that maybe there's something about the institutions themselves that can outlast, you know, this fever that's taken over and that it 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 breaks and then we, you know, come out of it. 
but there's also something to be said about what you, you know, the, that generational shift. And I think that's also one of the reasons that I'm pessimistic is that the people that speak out about this, um, and I, I said this in my letter exchange with Aeon, she was, she was like, so long as we have, you know, liberal heroes, like, you know, Sam Harris and this person, this one, she's, yeah, right. she's closer to people. my age. Yeah. And I'm, yeah. And I'm like, I'm like, is any of those people, the nobody she mentioned was like under 50, you know, most of them were sixties, even, you know, older. They are, you know, incredible heroes, and 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 they're pushing back, and they're and they're, you know, creating this intellectual space. But, um, you know, the future belongs to the young, unfortunately, in this case. <laughs> um, uh, you should have a bumper sticker: "The future belongs to the young, unfortunately." <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, you know, maybe there's a generational aspect of it, and 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 there's a hope in that too. In that, uh, you know, maybe the, this is a millennial thing. And the Zoomers will reject it in the way that the millennials rejected uh, the the kind of um, enlightenment liberalism, uh, and maybe we'll come back around to it or to something different that's still better. But I, I think maybe that 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 has something to do with my pessimism because all around me, other young women. I mean, it, it, to get back to the Islam, you know, topic, time and time again, I saw young women uh, dismissing the experience of adopting this sort of cultural relativist, you know, we can't judge, who are we to judge stance on the hijab, um, sometimes even going as far as to say that it's empowering. And then it would be the, 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 the second wave feminists who would say, you know, what, <laughs> this is, it's sexism, <laughs> you know, so it was, it was so interesting to see, you know, you know, women, my own age and, and dismissing the kind of uh, feminism that I thought was the feminism, you know, I thought that th- th- this was the last word on feminism. And then turns out there's this other wave and there's this other new way of looking at things. And, and that new way of looking at things means looking at something like FGM and saying, well, maybe there's something positive here, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. That one's, uh, <laughs> that one's tough to get your mind around. I mean, what I, how do they possibly come up with an argument that, FGM, this is female genital mutilation, is it's a cultural phenomenon that a, a white Westerner cannot criticize. Yeah, I mean, I heard that explicitly said multiple times, and it was shocking every time. One of those times it was said from a gender studies professor, which was really interesting. Um, and by interesting, I mean like enraging, right? I saw it happen, and that's, uh, that's kind of why I'm a, a little bit more pessimistic. I think that there's a potential that the even younger generation that grows up within this kind of you know insane political atmosphere recognizes that there's something wrong with it and fixes it and i think that might be part of why young feminists my age are able to adopt these politics is because they're still living in a reality in which you know the the sort of enlightenment kind of liberalism was dominant and uh, taken for granted, in fact, right? Entirely taken for granted. And so they cannot imagine a world in which due process isn't a thing, you know, in, w- uh, in which we really are treated as, you know, members of a certain race or, or sex and and not given any kind of uh, legal rights or considerations outside of that, which is why they're they're flirting with it. They're flirting with those same ideas again, not knowing exactly where they lead, um, because they've never really encountered anything anything like it. So maybe there's a hope for 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 the next generation. I, I'm willing. I will grant that. <laughs> yeah, they're flirting with them on a kind of hypothetical academic level, without looking at the the practical application. What that might 
what that might look like. Yeah, I feel like there's a lot of this, a lot of the discourse, it's as if people are in like a, like a, like a postmodernist kind of literary theory class. And they're talking about issues in the realm of the hypothetical as a kind of thought exercise. I mean, without, without looking at the actual, you know, effects on the ground. And that applies, you know, across any number of political, you know, political issues. Well, I mean, how do you, like, Sarah, do you have friends? You're, do you have friends your own age? Like, how, how do you function, you know, kind of in, in the world socially? Like, what kinds of conversations do you have with your, with your friends? And why do you think that you, as a 30-year-old woman, have not kind of gotten wrapped up in this? I think I was, the, my experience with, you know, ex-Muslim activism as it was kind of, uh, it made these the what was at stake very clear at an early point uh, in my intellectual development. So because of it's the stakes are so they're so severe in that context um, that I've been thinking about some of these issues on a very fundamental level for a very long time. So I can't take them for granted. You know, I don't take freedom of speech for granted. So I'm very protective of it. Um, I don't take uh, legal equality for granted. So I'm very uh, protective of it. I don't take due process for granted. I think some of that is just like from from the perspective from which I came, you know, I wouldn't say immunizes me, but I think it definitely uh, puts me in a position where it is the 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 absurdities of it are very clear and have always been very clear. And in fact, um, distra- distressing, right? It, in, enough that I want to talk about it all the time. <laughs> uh, but as far as my friends, um, that's an interesting question. Uh, I... You know, socially, I'm in a very weird place. My offline friends, you know, what I call it, what I call offline friends, they're, they're not very political people. Um, and I think that's the only way for me to get about the world, which is just uh, talk to people who just don't care about politics on any level. Um, and they want to talk about gardening and they want to talk about, you know, the new gym that opened up <laughs> and they don't, they don't want to have these conversations. They want to have other conversations. And that's, that's wonderful. Um, my, you know, closest friends, uh, a friend from from high school like she doesn't even know what I do exactly like she <laughs> she she's like oh you're on Twitter I'm like yeah um uh so she doesn't she doesn't know anything about it and that's wonderful um uh, because we can just talk about other things and that's a great uh it, it's it's a great rest for the mind as well but outside of that those um little oases of of protection from the political discourse um, my friends are all over the place. And what's interesting is, is apostates of all sorts come to me. Um, and I, I mean, in the sense of not like religious apostates, but ideological apostates from any, you know, they, they come to me and they say, and they share with me their experience of feeling like an outsider and feeling like they can't talk about uh, what they want to talk about, which is, I think a lot of us have the same experience, which is really interesting. And it gives us opportunity to befriend someone as well, because you can, uh, you know, open up uh, and talk about it. Um, as I've become more open about these issues and well-known about these issues, I've I've been able to build up a, a friend group that is you know, composed of truly tolerant people. And uh, by tolerant, I mean, not just, not just tolerant in that passive, like, oh, yay, everybody's great kind of way, but in the old 
you know, civil liberties kind of sense, which is actually, I really disagree with you, but I, you know, uh, defend your right to, to, to think it and say it. And I actually won't even necessarily judge your character entirely based off of it. Right. Um, I will consider it as something that we can disagree on and maybe I can convince you, um, you know, that I won't, uh, peg you as necessarily someone who's, uh, you know, pro-life or pro-choice or, you know, all these, these labels, these intellectual labels. So that's a, that's a wonderful thing. Um, they're not all young though. Most of them are not young. We're going to pause here for a short message from me. Are you appreciating this conversation and wishing there were more like it out there? Well, there are lots more right here. I do this show every week and I pretty much do it all by myself. That is why, as much as I'm loath to ask for help, people who know me know this, I am offering this gentle reminder that if you value honest, thoughtful, nuanced conversations with all kinds of people, novelists, scientists, philosophers, comedians, journalists, sometimes even just regular folks with something interesting to say, I hope you'll consider supporting the show in any way you can. One way to do this is by joining our Patreon community at patreon.com slash the unspeakable. You can join for as little as $5 a month. That gives you early and ad-free access to the show or for as much as $100 a month. And yes, people have done that. There are lots of perks at every level, including if you join at the $10 a month tier or higher, the chance to join our bi-weekly hangout where we, and that includes me, get together on Zoom to talk about a recent specific episode of the show. Joining at that level also gets you discounts on your first purchase of official Unspeakable Podcast Nuanced AF merchandise. If Patreon is not your thing, you can also make a one-time donation in any amount by going to the podcast webpage at theunspeakablepodcast.com and clicking the donation button. This podcast is a one-woman enterprise. I'm not affiliated with any institution, media company, secret investment cabal, or anything like that. I do it because I love it. And if you love it, or even like it, I hope you'll consider supporting it in any way that makes sense for you. Leaving a positive rating or review wherever you get your podcasts is a big help, actually. And telling people about the podcast, sharing it with friends, just spreading the word actually means more to me than anything. So thank you for listening to the show, for making the unspeakable worth speaking. And with that, back to the interview. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that I've been talking about a lot is the way that these sorts of divisions affect women differently than men, not to be gender essentialist, but there are, you know, I was tweeting about this the other day. I think you you might have seen it. Like, you know, there are there are fewer women in this kind of free think heterodox space than men by a lot. It's a very male dominated space. And there are several reasons for that. But one of them is that women just on balance tend to be more sensitive to the social penalties that come from speaking out. We don't want our friends to not like us anymore. We don't want to hurt people's feelings. Um, and so I think that you have a lot of, you know, podcaster types and, and sub stackers and YouTubers that, that are men, obviously there, there are us, we're here, there are a handful of women, but it's mostly men. And there are a lot of women. I'm, I'm assuming these are the same types of people that write to you that say, you know, I've lost my friends. I've, you know, I've gotten kicked out of my book club. I got kind of pushed out of this Facebook group. So I'm wondering if you have thoughts about 
why there aren't more women speaking up. Maybe you have a theory that's different than mine and just sort of what it's like for you to be a woman in this space. Do you get more pushback from other women than from men, for instance? Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, your articulation of it um, is, you know, the bulk of of what's what's going on here and is something that I think can be hard for people to absorb because it references what may be, you know, biological differences. differences. Yeah. We're going to bleep <laughs> right. that out. Bleep. <laughs> right. Um, so it references that, which is why it's sort of impossible to bring up. You have to, you have to do this in the social constructivest sense. You have to say women are yes, we're socialized, socially to care socialized people. to care about, right. Which is, I mean, I, I'm tired of doing it and I won't do it. I wasn't. It's I like, believe- if you, if you met my parents, you would, you would not believe that. I mean, and, and it's so, it's so, it's, you know, logically it, 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 it doesn't even make sense that li- literally everything is uh, socially constructive, uh, you know, norms all the time, but it, they just happen to fall in, in one pattern throughout history and all human societies. When it comes to, to women and why it's hard for, I guess, this kind of intellectual work, I mean, I think that uh, you know, social penalties are a really big part of it. And, uh, you know, what you said that women are more sensitive to social penalties. I also think there's more social coercion, you know, from other women to to other women. Um, so there's, you know, there's both ends of it that you have a person who's more sensitive to uh, stigma, social stigma, and you also have, um, you know, people who are willing to use it, perhaps because they recognize that it'll work. <laughs> Uh, you know, it will work better. Uh, and, you know, perhaps in, in that sense, there is, there are some, you know, normative, uh, you know, practices or whatever uh, that, that have, that have something to do with it. But certainly the social world of women is a very different social world of men. And then, and I, I was thinking about this as I, you know, I think we mentioned Jordan, P- Jordan Peterson in our own conversations. And I, I, I mentioned him on, on Twitter, just why aren't there female Jordan Petersons, you know? And I think there's something that, that, Jordan Peterson isn't just, you know, he isn't just a maverick or an interesting thinker, but he is somebody who's just so, you know, deeply stigmatized that even to follow him carries a stigma. So I think that if you're a woman and you're you're a female leader who is, uh, you know, ideologically very, you know, easily stigmatized, it's hard to find other female followers, even if you're speaking to them and speaking about their issues primarily. And then maybe men won't pay attention to you as much because they don't care about those issues. Um, so there's there's a lot at work that 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 makes it very difficult for somebody like this to 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 come to the fore, and for alternative realms of discourse to to crop up naturally in female spaces. Um, I, I definitely see that. I mean, there's there's those ma- the the you know what's it called the male internet? What do they call it? Oh, the manosphere. Manosphere. <laughs> <laughs> right manosphere um so these just these terms are so they're so dumb but <laughs> the manosphere as far as i know of it 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 genuinely feels very toxic and and kind of misogynisty at times but at least but it exists and it right? has like, a kernel I mean, of legitimacy i mean that's the thing i mean i think men's rights movement is fascinating personally i think there's like a lot of lot of conversation to be had there but unfortunately but it just gets like it completely like bastardized into this just ugly poisonous like lowest common denominator kind of discourse 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely clear that the broader culture, which is uniform, uh, hates the manosphere and imposes a great deal of stigma on all of those conversations, anything related to those conversations. So that makes it very difficult for it to be anything other than poisonous and toxic. But it's it's interesting to me that that still some men join it. You know, uh, you know, the red pill or whatever is still very popular among men, despite the stigma. Um, female spaces are very different, you know, and I'm, I'm on all sorts of like forums and whatever that are, that are female heavy. There's, um, a different way of speaking, you know, even about like problems that are facing us. There's a different way of speaking. Like men speak in self-improvement terms and women speak in self-empowerment terms, right? Self-care. <laughs> self-care, right? Like there's like a tendency, I think for um, that society, I think, internalizes the problems of men to men. You know, the men are just too toxic and they just need to stop being toxic. And But problems that befall women are externalized. You know, it's society that's causing them. Right. And we have to, we have to be a survivor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or it's mm-hmm. like, if you're, if you're going to be self-empowered, it's this kind of girl boss, badass kind of thing. Like, I mean, why, can't why just be a boss? Be, what is empowerment? Right. right? Yeah. Right. yeah. <laughs> don't just be, don't be a boss, be, be a girl boss. Be a girl boss, be, yeah. And, 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 and all these, these terms that are just so ridiculous because they're ridiculous when you apply them to men, right? Boy boss, that's ridiculous. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Right. I mean, it's infantilizing, right? So you recognize it as being silly because it is infantilizing. And you don't say that a man has become empowered, you know, from a, from a young man who was a dishwasher to now he's, you know, the CEO, he's become empowered. No, he's just in power now. He found his voice (laughs) so he could become the CEO. Yeah, well, you've written a lot of it really interesting stuff about gender on your Substack lately. You you wrote a piece about um about the the dating economy um or or what was it like standards of physical beauty and and dating um I, I want you to yeah, talk just, about just that a little generally bit. why why dating advice sucks. I mean, it was oh, that's just right. this, um, yes. kind of a you know, and I'm I'm always interested in like the dynamics of something, you know? So what are the, what are the incentives in place that are getting people to behave one way or the other? That's my go-to way of analyzing everything. So it was just my little piece on what's going on with the, with, with the dating advice. And I think it has something to do also with just the conversation we, we, we had about women, which is there's an incentivization to, you know, console people, it's also some, it's the dating world is also a world, I mean, similar to other cultural discourses that are kind of, you know, poisonous on one end and uh, not true uh, or too simplistic on the other. It's, you know, in the dating world, there's just, it's too easy to be problematic. It's too easy to talk about the realistic um, you know, formulas that are at play, you know, what is actually attractive to women and what is actually attractive to men. Um, and we just can't have this conversation because it's a very problematic conversation. And so it leads a lot of men to be confused. They don't, they think that they're doing the right things and they're not getting women. And then they get pulled into, you know, red pill and all the, all the manosphere or whatever. And for women, it leads to, you know, a, a lot of women following these, uh, th- this advice and then ending in a place where they're unhappy. Um, in, you know, a piece that I'm about to write on my Substack um, is about my experience in in the DC uh, uh, area, um, which is where I am now. And uh, a lot of women here are highly educated, like highly, highly. This is one of the most educated places in the United States. Everybody has a master's. Um, like your your uh, bachelor's is not enough. Um, 
and many people are very, very career oriented, very, very career minded. Um, and, and the kinds of careers that they're going into, because it is DC, right. That's very, uh, professional, um, clean, uh, not mavericky, taking chances kind of careers. Yeah, very there's, kind of there. background. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Like uh, heads of foundations and, uh, you know, uh, government relations officers for big firms, that kind of thing. Um, and so it, 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 here, it's very clear to me, my friends here, uh, I, I'm seeing this kind of this harm that's happening to these women develop uh, and increase over time, uh, where it, it, my friends are finding themselves, you know, 39. And, and, and now they're finding out for the first time that, you know, there's a window on their fertility, which is crazy. That's a great, I, I, I think that's the craziest thing, but I've heard so many women say it, that they didn't realize that, uh, you know, IVF was going to be as hard yeah, as I it don't, was. That, I don't understand that either because I thought we sorted that out like 20 years ago because people were talking about that back in the nineties, like, oh, wait, you mean there is a biological clock? And then I thought all the women's magazines ran pieces about it and it, it, you know, we course corrected it and everybody understands, but apparently not. I, d- I don't think that happened at all. And, and if anything, I think it's, it's, it's still, it's, it's going to be, and maybe not a crisis, but, but definitely something, a, a ton of women that really didn't need to experience this are going to experience. Um, uh, and they're, they're, they're going to find that they, their future looks very different than they, than they thought it was going to look. And I'm, I'm seeing it actively, um, among my friends, uh, who are disproportionately, um, you know, using all kinds of fertility, like on all kinds of fertility treatments, which are extremely expensive, extremely, uh, painful. Um, and talk you know, about exclusive. A, I mean, talk about not inclusive. Mm-hmm, not everybody mm-hmm. can afford those things. Right, right. And I, I, I've been thinking about how are you, how are you here? You know, how is it that someone who's so educated, so, you know, in tune with, uh, uh, with what's going on in the world, uh, professional and empowered and all of these things, you know, how are you, how are you here finding yourself at, 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 you know, 42 or whatever and, and unable to conceive and surprised. Um, so it, it, it's not that they're stupid. It's that the, they're not getting the the cultural messages that would allow for them to to course correct. I think, or or at least uh, the messages that what you're calling the self the, the the correction messages were too easily dismissed. Yeah, it's um, funny. So so we're not allowed to talk about the biological clock because that is somehow sexist or disempowering or like yeah yeah. I, it's it's funny because you know I I did a um I've done a lot of work around choosing not to have children, which is you know a whole other thing. But um I, I did an interview one time, the podcast, and you know they were very friendly. The, the hosts were very friendly toward this topic, and they were you know nice liberals and all of that. And and they asked something like, well, you know, there's there's also the issue of all these women being you know told told that the clock is ticking, you know, and I said, well, it is, it is ticking, you know, I, that's, that's a, that's a fact. And that part got cut out of the interview. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh. I'm not sure why, maybe for time, maybe for time, but yeah, no, it's, um, you know, you, I, it's, but it is like it, it, the idea that women were sold a bill of goods, that, that phrase used to be used a lot around second wave feminism, like, oh, they were sold a bill of goods that they could have career and family at the same time that you could have a really high flying career and, and raise kids. And that proved to be much more difficult than people realized. But, but now it's just, they, they're not even having the kids. Well, 
Well, I mean, I, I think part of the reason we're just never going to get we're never going to get past this is because of you know what we touched on for a second there, which is that there's biological differences, and so long as the the culture won't touch on that, um, I mean, it's it's just men won't take care of uh, you know they won't take care the equal childcare, they won't do it, and we just have to tell the husbands to stand up and take care of their kids, right? It, but except that's not that's not what's happening, right? What's happening is that the mothers want to spend time with their children, or they they have this long recovery period um, after childbirth or or whatever, you know, and they're breastfeeding and they want to breastfeed for a very long time. All these you know, biological factors that you can't really argue with too much that are influencing their decisions. And they need to be at least acknowledged as something that is other than socially constructed, because the solution presented is always, you know, like, we just need to, we just need to tell men to do more, you know, chores. <laughs> like, um, And it's just, it's more complicated than that, actually. Yeah. You know, it, with your, uh, with your dating advice piece, you write, you know, the, the real problem is that attraction is problematic. Lust is inherently discriminatory, objectifying, and deeply sexist and ableist and ageist. And while many desire to be lusted after and work to achieve, quote, fuckability, we tend to find it unreasonable, even cruel, to be rejected for that same reason. And that that does line up with the point you were just making about, you know, household the division of household labor. There's just um, a, a, a real resistance to to biological imperative. I mean, this is the naturalistic fallacy. I talk about this with Heather Hying, who's been on the show a few times. You know, just because we we don't like something doesn't mean it isn't true. And and people don't want it to be true, right? So with when it comes to young women, uh, telling the message that I'm giving them is actually a really sad one, and they don't want to hear it. Um, and the message that that uh, uh, you know larger forces of the culture is telling them you can do whatever you want. You have uh, plenty of time to choose, and uh, you know you should you should you should achieve all the empowerment, uh, you know, and and see the world and all these things. And those are all lovely things, right? But they they come at a cost, and that just needs to be very clear to people. Um, and it might not necessarily be a cost that you would have to pay because you could just not want kids. That's one. Right. Um, and that's, that's, I, that, that's the best, most best people, case scenario most is people actually, don't want that. I mean, I'm an outlier. The vast majority of people do want to have kids. Right. Right. And I think the, the vast majority of, you know, women want to have kids and, and see that as like a cornerstone of, of, uh, their, their, their life. And as like an important milestone, you know, in, in their life to have kids and to be surrounded by family. And they, it's something we take for granted, I think, because we spend so much time trying not to get pregnant. You know, like for the, when you're when you're a young woman, you're trying not to get pregnant for a very, very long time, and then all of a sudden you can't get pregnant. Um, and it's a, it, the, the the situation flips, and that's why I think it's so disorienting as well uh, to sudden, suddenly face that. Um, but I, it, we're not going to have a sane conversation on on dating or on. It, you know, these, these kinds of we need, uh, norms that women are following, men are following, thinking that they will lead them to a, uh, you know, a, a fulfilling life. Um, we're not going to have that conversation until we at least acknowledge that there's differences that we, we just have to, we just have to, you know, put out there. <laughs> um, so is this more of your work these days? Like, are you sort of shifting away from the, the atheist space and talking more about these issues like what's what's occupying your your mind 
yeah, I'm, um, it's not that I'm done with atheism. It's that, uh, that literal conversation of God and religion, like I'm, I'm done with that bit of it. Uh, the bit that I'm still very interested in is how we come to believe certain things uh, and what uh, social forces work to keep us into uh, false beliefs or to, you know, convince us that false beliefs are in fact not false. Right. So, so th- th- there's, just a little literal logical element of it. But I think the more interesting part for me is a psychology of belief and the psychology of disbelief. And more recently I've been thinking about things in, from in the mimetic kind of uh, perspective, which is to say, rather than thinking of why people adopt a belief, it's how does a belief acquire followers? <laughs> right? Um, sort of flipping the perspective a little bit, which is very interesting to me. And it can kind of be applied to anything, like any broken part of the cultural space. Uh, you can start thinking about it this way. Um, you know, why does something, why is this, you know, broken way of viewing things still the way we're viewing things? And often I find there's some interesting patterns that come up again and again. And then one big one is just a refusal to acknowledge reality for one reason or another. And I, what I'm wanting to do on my Substack is explore that a little bit, you know, like what, wh- why, uh, when certain place, certain discourses in the culture are so broken, you know, why is it that they, that they get to be where they are? Um, not just that they're wrong, <laughs> but you know, why they're wrong, um, or why we have come to believe it, even though they're wrong. You wrote in a recent Substack that we're shifting into a culture of honor versus a culture of dignity. And I think that's something that Jonathan Haidt has also talked about. But what does that mean to you? Um, it it means to me that we're shifting into a culture that has a a different kind of self conception. I guess how like what is right with how we behave? Um, how what is a right way to treat other people? And a uh, I formulate this a little bit on what um, a lot bit actually on what Jonathan Haidt has to say about it. Um, but my experience with honor culture is is different than obviously his experience with it. And my experiences with honor culture were a literal honor culture where uh, men want to appear formidable, um, where reputation uh, matters a lot, and that it is in fact more important than the search for truth, and that that in fact the people's worth is something more than necessarily their reputation. Right. So we become a culture where I think where we focus a lot, uh, being sensitive to slights, whether they are, uh, you know, uh, feeling as if your biology holds you down in one way or another, we're focusing a lot on social equality, which I think is in itself a very kind of a bizarre concept. Um, and an impossible concept in a in a society where there's still a certain element of freedom. Uh, so I think it's, there's something changing in our discourse um, that's that's approaching more of what what Jonathan Haidt calls um, in a, a culture of honor. Um, and this is a this is a culture where where you you settle things by by really fighting it out by ostracizing people um, rather than articulating you know. The pros and cons of something, um, and and achieving together um, a consensus on truth. Okay, I have to think about that. But I think you're I think you're onto something. You're both onto something. 
Well, Sarah, this has been great. I'm really happy that I finally got a chance to talk with you. And I hope it's just the first of many conversations. I guess my last question is, you know, given how um, how 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 less than hopeful you're feeling about the, the current moment, what do you hope to achieve with your work? You want people to read what you have to say and, and listen to you um, and feel a sense of alignment or, or kinship or just, you know, feel less, less isolated when they come across your, your content. What do you want to give to the world? You know, I hope, I hope when they, they, they read my work that they will, you know, feel that they're not alone. All these things are, they're very important emotions. Um, But I, what I, what I really wish for people to, you know, for us to start doing together is to investigate more deliberately what we're doing and why. And especially when it comes to the stuff that seems very easy, the kinds of conversations I think that are the most toxic are the, are the kinds that, you know, as we've mentioned so many times in our conversation, have a very simplistic um, approach or a very, very, very complicated one as well. Um, and I'd like for people to think about why they've they've come to adopt what they have adopted, um, to really adopt that kind of sense of skepticism that I started to adopt after I left the faith. And I think that that was the one, that was the one really wonderful thing about leaving religion in that I felt, you know, I was in this position where I thought I knew so much. <laughs> I thought I was in possession of like this perfect truth. And then I found out that I really didn't know anything about about the world, and and my my truth was probably false and maybe even harmful. And um, this caused uh, this 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 you know th- th- there was this deep rooted skepticism that I adopted from 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 then on that I that I still carry that I find to be really useful, um, and I find to be actually. Um, is something that we could use more of um, in in the culture, uh, which is just to think about uh, the fact that you may be wrong to entertain other ideas. So much of what I see on on Twitter that is just really broken discourse is is people who you know even uh, they 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 treat others as toxic for simply entertaining an idea. You know, simply just saying, "Hmm, I think this is interesting." Yeah, I retweeted this article. This was interesting. Um, just saying that can get you stigmatized and ostracized, which is so frightening. <laughs> I mean, you know, that alone is so frightening. And um, I want people to break out of that and to start to think of that as a, as, as, as not just something that is um, a, a bad habit, but something that is almost sure to lead to uh, like harm, you know, uh, moral harm, uh, re- you know, real physical harm to people that if we, if, if, if we willingly uh, close off our, you know, eyes and ears, and refuse to to look at the world as it is. There's a very real consequence to that. There are real lives, um, uh, you know, at stake. Um, and uh, we we touched upon this in the conversation too about how this is sort of a, an elite game. Um, so much of these cultural conversations with with people who 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 don't know what they're talking about. They don't know the real stakes. They don't know. Um, uh, what certain policies might mean in the real world. I remember that that was an extremely infuriating aspect of, of uh, the, the conversation a couple of years back on looting. Um, there, there were very, you know, there were what seemed to me to be very privileged, educated, you know, intellectual people making a case for looting. 
and it 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 became clear to me right then that these people don't know what it's like to live in the in a actually marginalized community um in society and they don't they don't know what the the, the real consequences of the games that they're playing they think that they're just games but they're you know we're we're really this this matters this stuff really matters and it matters that we're that our discourse is open and it's open to the possibility of being wrong. Um, and I've even said that about why I support, you know, freedom of speech. It's not because it, I think that there's a common perception that, that you have the marketplace of ideas and it's open. Um, and it, it, with the, with the marketplace of ideas, you will eventually lead to, you know, the truth. It's sort of an inevitable outcome. I don't think that's necessarily the case. I don't think what is true and what is good is inevitable. Um, because often so many forces get in the way of us, you know, accepting the truth or accepting the good. So there's a, an element of that that has to be discussed. But the marketplace of freedom of speech is is valuable because only in the case that we have freedom of speech, that we have this chance to air out the truth, is it is it possible for the for for what is good and for what is true to to win out in the end. So it's not a, you know, it's not a necessary win, but it is necessary to win. <laughs> if that makes sense. Oh, it makes perfect sense. And it doesn't sound that pessimistic. That sounded oh. almost <laughs> optimistic. So hate to break it to Wonderful. you. I don't think, I don't think we're quite as hopeless as we might feel on a moment by moment basis. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for, for talking with me and giving me all this time. And um, thanks for all the really important work that you're doing and um, just for the way you uh, you conduct yourself. I have to say you you have you show remarkable restraint on Twitter, which I think is um, ex- extremely uh, admirable and uh, you're a great role model there. So thank you. That's so good to hear because I do definitely feel like I'm losing my mind on there all the time. Okay. So it's, not, uh... not that I've noticed. So <laughs> maybe uh, maybe I have to look closer, but you seem like you uh, you've, you've got it together. So Hats off well, to you. Thank you, Megan. And, and, um, yeah. Thank you for doing this. And thank you for hosting me. It's been such a fun conversation. Well, likewise. And I hope we do it again. That was my conversation with activist and writer Sarah Hader. She has spent much of her professional life in the charitable world, co-founding two nonprofit organizations, including ex-Muslims of North America. You can find her writing on Substack, Her newsletter there is called Hold That Thought, or you can find her on Twitter at at Sarah the Hater. That's H-A-I-D-E-R. Once again, an extended version of this conversation, about 40 minutes more of it, is available on the Patreon page for this podcast at patreon.com slash the unspeakable. You can hear more about Sarah's background, how she came from Pakistan when she was seven and she grew up as a pretty observant Muslim in Houston, Texas, and how she eventually ended up a prominent figure in the atheist community. You can get lots of other perks if you join the Patreon, but if Patreon is not your thing, you can also make a one-time donation to the podcast in any amount by visiting the show's website at theunspeakablepodcast.com and clicking on the donate button on the homepage. Again, if you are interested in the Unspeakeasy, which is the heterodox women's community I'm in the process of creating, you can go to theunspeakeasy.com and see what it's all about. You'll also have the opportunity to fill out a brief form and tell me what you might want from such a thing. Again, that's theunspeakeasy.com. I'll be back next week with another super nuanced guest, 
Thanks for listening. See you next time.